Um, I'm just going to say one more prayer as we begin, if you just pray with me. Abba Father, thank you so much. We welcome you here tonight through the presence of your Holy Spirit that indwells each and every one of us. We come to you thankfully, with thanks in our hearts. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and what he did on this Good Friday. And it's in his matchless name we pray, Jesus Christ, amen. I uh, was reading through Matthew chapter 21 this week as we began on Sunday with Palm Sunday. And as you know, Matthew chapter 21 really describes this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And my attention, you know how it is when your attention is just drawn to something when you're reading the Bible, you just focus on something. And my attention was drawn to, to verse 10. And it said, And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And so the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now note, in all of those words, note the city, Jerusalem, was moved. Moved. You remember when the three wise men came to Jerusalem and they were looking for a Jewish king? And all Jerusalem was disturbed, was moved. And now here Jesus is entering Jerusalem again, and the entire city is moved. Now that word moved, used in other places in the New Testament, it describes a shaking that takes place When there's an earthquake, the city was shaken by the entry of Jesus. And all Jerusalem said, who is this? As the multitudes with Jesus also proclaimed his coming to the holy city with shouts of Hosanna to the son of David. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a triumphal procession, and it was Sunday, the first day of the week. But by the end of that same week, all of the acclamation, all of the hosannas had turned to accusation, arrest, trial, a brutal flesh-tearing, bone-chipping, flogging, and an excruciating crucifixion. Jesus' followers fled, just like the Old Testament prophet Zechariah had foretold hundreds of years earlier in 13.7. Zechariah, God said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. In fact, everything about Jesus' crucifixion and death was prophesied in the Old Testament in Psalms, in Isaiah, and Zechariah. Let me give you a few examples. A close friend will betray him. He will be sold for 30 pieces of silver. The money will be given to a potter. The sheep will scatter when the shepherd is struck. False witnesses will accuse him. He will remain silent when oppressed. He will be mocked, beaten, and spit on. 
He will be given vinegar and gall and bitter medicinal substance. He will die among criminals. His clothes will be divided and lots cast for his garment. This is Old Testament. It surprises me. They read this many times that they didn't see it. Enemies will insult and mock him, and he will be an object of scorn. God will forsake him. And he will be buried with the rich. For about three years, the people of Israel saw Jesus work miracles. They heard him teach with authority. They were drawn to him. They were healed by him. Some were resurrected from death by him. And so no doubt, as they celebrated Jesus coming into Jerusalem and were moved that he was coming to the capital city, now to lead, they thought, a revolution to overthrow Roman oppressors. But what happened? Instead of rallying support for a revolution, instead of challenging the Romans, Jesus went straight to the temple and challenged the Jewish leaders. Not a good political move to start a revolution against Rome. The multitudes of people were still with Jesus at this stage, but he clearly wasn't doing what generally was expected of the Messiah for whom they had been waiting. Jesus then went outside Jerusalem to Bethany, where he stayed while he taught on the Mount of Olives. And he returned several times. He returned on Thursday to eat the Last Supper with his disciples. But all week, all week, the Jewish leaders had been scheming and lobbying the city against Jesus. And in the middle of the night, Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Dragged before Annas, the high priest, and then before Caiaphas and the entire Sanhedrin. All of this examining and cross-examining took place through the early hours of the morning, and Jesus hadn't even slept for a full 24 hours. And when they felt it was a reasonable enough hour in the morning, Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, for his stamp of approval on what the Jewish leaders had been determining should happen. The accusations that they made before Pilate were that Jesus was plotting against Rome. Treason, punishable by death. But Pilate was reluctant. He could smell a rat. He said, I find no fault in this man. But finally, Pilate relented to appease the locals, and he ordered Jesus' crucifixion. By late Friday afternoon, in that same week, when the city had been moved, Jesus was dead. Tonight, this Good Friday, I want to suggest to you that the only way to answer this question that I raised tonight was Good Friday really 
a Good Friday? The only way to determine if it was really a Good Friday is to examine who ultimately was responsible for Jesus' death on the cross. Was it the Roman government? Pontius Pilate? The Roman soldiers? Was it the Jewish leaders and those in the crowd who called, Crucify him! Crucify him! Was it Herod? Was it Judas Iscariot? Was it Satan? It seems reasonable to conclude the Pharisees and other religious leaders and teachers were responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus had denounced their false worship and hypocrisy. He called them a brood of vipers and had become a threat to their leadership and control. In Matthew 12, 14, we're told the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. And then after Jesus was arrested, they took Jesus to the high priest and all before all the chief priests and elders and teachers of the law, they came together and Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. And they tried him and convicted him. In Mark 15, 1, we are told that very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the entire Sanhedrin, they had reached a decision, and they bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. So, we might conclude that it was the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, Annas, Caiaphas, and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all of that bunch who were responsible for Jesus' death on the cross. There's also good reason to conclude it was Pontius Pilate who was responsible for the brutal beating, torture, and crucifixion of Jesus. At that particular point in time, Pilate was reluctant to stand up to the people, and he finally handed Jesus over to be nailed and hung on a cross. And in fact, it was Pilate who had the legal authority to condemn Jesus to death. So, we might conclude Pontius Pilate was responsible for Jesus' death on the cross. There also seems to be good reason to conclude it was the crowd of people assembled before Pilate who were responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. It was the crowd assembled before him who cried out, crucify him, crucify him, and put extreme political pressure on Pilate to do what they were calling for. Pilate at that time couldn't risk Caesar removing him from his position if the Jews again rose up in open rebellion against Rome. So, we might conclude it was the crowd of people who were responsible for Jesus' death on the cross. There was also good reason to conclude it was the Roman soldiers who mutilated and then crucified Jesus who were responsible for Jesus' death on the cross. These military men were the ones who actually shredded Jesus' body with rods and metal-studded whips, who crushed a crown of thorns on Jesus' skull, who punched Jesus' face and who physically assaulted Jesus as he stumbled all along the entire way to Golgotha. 
and then placed Jesus on a cross, hammered spikes through Jesus' wrists and ankles, and mocked him and cast lots for his clothes. So we might conclude those Roman soldiers were responsible for Jesus' death on a cross. Physically, temporally, there were, in fact, many hands that took part in bringing about and carrying out the mayhem and butchery that pummeled, bled, punctured, tortured, and suffocated Jesus to death. On the more metaphysical level, perhaps we could say the best answer is that it was us. All sinful mankind who were responsible for Jesus' death on the cross. That seems to be the prevailing and satisfying point of view. Now get this, it may sound strange to you, but I want to propose tonight that it is the height of human conceit and audacity to think that a man or any group of men are ultimately responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus did not come from heaven to earth and suffer and die as a Jewish blasphemy or a blasphemer or inciting a revolution against Caesar and Rome. If that were true, then the Romans and the Jews certainly would be responsible for Jesus' death on a cross. But it was not true. And Jesus did not come to suffer and die at their hands for the reasons they accused him and executed him. So ultimately, who is responsible for Jesus going to the cross? Whose idea was it? Who was the architect of the cross? Who put Jesus there? I believe we find the answer, the most conclusive answer, stated in 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. God himself was the architect of Calvary. It was his idea. It was his design. It was his plan. It was his timing. It was his solution. It was his son. It was his victory in his battle to reclaim his creation. God did this to get us back. Let's look together at the basic truths of the word of God that declare things about God's responsibility for Jesus' crucifixion. Truth number one, God sent his son into the world. God sent his son into the world. It all began with God. God saw our plight. He saw we were helplessly and hopelessly lost to sin. We were cut off from any kind of a relationship with him. So he took radical action. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In fact, God planned Calvary 
before he created the world in which he permitted mankind to exercise the free will to obey and rebel against God. Man chose to rebel against God. Man chose his ways rather than God's ways, and God and man could no longer walk together in Eden in the cool of the evening. Man eternally separated himself from God. Dead. However, God sent his only begotten son, the prince of glory, who had always been a co-partner with him into the world to set free the captives of earth and death and reclaim them back for himself. God sent Jesus into the world that the world through Jesus might be saved. Truth number one. Truth number two. God prepared his son as a sacrifice. In Isaiah 53, 2, we read, For he, Jesus, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Like a gardener, God planted his own seed in a virgin's womb and watched Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Then for about three decades, God watched Jesus grow through childhood and adolescence and into manhood. And all the while, God himself was preparing Jesus for what he had sent him to do. God was like a shepherd watching with special care over the prized lamb of the flock, the unblemished lamb, the best, the most pure, because Jesus was being prepared to be the lamb of sacrifice, offered as a complete, perfect atonement for the sin of all mankind. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him, he called out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. All through Jesus' earthly life, for about 33 years, God was preparing his son for the brutal crucifixion mission that God had spoken because he loves us and wanted to cancel our eternal separation from him and reclaim us. Truth number three, God called his son to the cross. When the time was right, God summoned Jesus to Jerusalem. And as Jesus and his disciples, Jesus obediently and his disciples following Jesus, traveled there, and Jesus began to speak about dying. The disciples didn't understand it, but Jesus knew he was being led by God, his Father, into the final drama and trauma of death by mutilation and crucifixion. Jesus wasn't fooled by this regal reception that he received when Jerusalem, all of the city, was moved. Jesus knew why he was there. By the end of the week, He would be deserted by everybody. And he would be crucified. And it was God who led Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane for final preparation 
an agonizing night, wrestling with the horrors set before him, and summoning strength and courage while in blood-perspiring communion with his Father. Then God led Jesus to trial and to the cross. It was God who led Jesus along the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, stumbling and collapsing while carrying his own cross. This was a scene that was premiered in the Old Testament where Abraham led his son Isaac up to the mountain, having laid on Isaac's back the very wood that would be used to sacrifice him. Truth number four. It was God who placed his son on the cross, on the altar. If you have any doubts about who put Jesus Christ on the cross, read Isaiah 53 and hear what God said. I'm going to take just a small portion of it. But if you can tonight, go read Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. Here it is. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I repeat, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not the Jews, not the crowd, not Pilate, not the Roman soldiers, not Nobody but God. And as Jesus hung on a cross, suspended between earth and heaven, his lifeblood oozed and dripped out on the ground because God had provided himself and for himself a sacrificial lamb to pay the high price for sin, to satisfy the demands of divine justice, to reclaim his creation, you and me and countless believers to himself and to eternity. How dare anybody ascribe responsibility for the suffering and crucifixion of the Son of God to anybody other than to God? It was the divine plan of God to take all of the sin of the entire human race, all of the rotten, despicable sin accrued during thousands of years of human history and lay it squarely on the body and life of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It was God. Jesus bore it all. All our shame, all our condemnation, and all of our deaths. As Jesus gasped his last breath of air and life, God, his Father, turned away, and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried this out for himself 
and for each and every one of us who would put our trust in Christ because separation from God was the price that had to be paid in full. And then, finally, Jesus pronounced the decree or a proclamation as creator, as king, and as redeemer. It is finished. Who else could say these three words, it is finished with greater authority and finality? The mission designed by God from beginning to the end was perfectly performed and completely finished so that those who believe in Christ Jesus are reconciled to God by God as his children and family to live with him forever. Under these circumstances, when responsibility for what happened to Jesus belongs to God and him alone, can there be any doubt among us that the Friday on which Jesus was crucified was to say the very least a good Friday? And if you should agree that Good Friday was a good Friday, then you might also ask, how good was it? In Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, the Apostle Paul tells us, listen to this, this is good. What then shall we say in response to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all. There's it. There's the responsibility right there. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised from life and is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death All day long, we are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The good that is in Good Friday is this. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. And now nothing, nothing can separate us 
from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That's Good Friday. Now today, this Good Friday, the cross of Jesus makes a twofold, echoing but resonant call. First, the cross makes a call to those who have never repented of sin and put their trust in Christ to be their Savior. If you do not accept and receive Christ as your Savior and Lord, then you must stand before God alone. The price Jesus paid does not count for you. The penalty still has to be paid, and you must pay it with the wages of sin, which is death and eternal separation from God. But because there was Good Friday and because there is Easter Sunday coming, there's opportunity. The Savior Jesus Christ, God's Son, is standing with arms wide open, receiving any and all who come. How do we know this is so? We know it because Jesus told us so in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will dine with him and he with me. Sometimes that's called communion. If you hear the Lord calling you, if you hear that knock, open the door and let his promise come to you. You can make that decision tonight, now. He's knocking. He said so. And quietly, right where you sit, you can make that decision and say, Lord, I accept what Jesus did. I accept the bounty of his body and his blood, which is eternal life. Accept that tonight. And then make a public announcement this Sunday when Pastor Aaron asks us to acknowledge whether or not we accept Jesus Christ. I want you to do that. The second calling, the echoing call of the cross calls to those who have received Christ as Savior and who trust Him. Believers are called never to forget that we are not our own. We were bought. We were redeemed and reconciled to God at an incredible price paid for by God himself with the body and with the blood of his son on Good Friday. Again, it was Jesus who told us how to remember and how to proclaim what he did with his body and his blood. And I think it's also related to where Jesus says, 
when I knock and you open the door, I'll come in and we'll dine together. And it was communion. So in closing our observance tonight of Good Friday together, let us remember and proclaim the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And let us do this, not somberly, but with celebration and hope. Yeah. Together. And dine with the Lord. And remember. In this aisle, there are containers here. Only in this aisle right here. If you'll take those beneath your seat, this aisle over here, pass them to your left. This aisle here, there's one for every row. You don't have to pass them back and forth, just to the right or to your left. Pass them all the way down and take the elements. They look like this, and you may have to wet your finger and just take the, the clear sealer off the top because the wafer is right above the, the foil. Pull the wafer, the bread out. And then you can also pull the silver foil off. Yeah, be careful not to spill. And then just hold that for a moment. And can I have the worship team just lead us in music as we do this? And just hold this. And just think about the words that we've heard tonight. Contemplate that. If you've not heard that knock by Jesus, listen for it. And if you had, prepare to celebrate with us in the next few moments. Oh, the
don't do anything yet. Just listen to my words. And then I'm going to go to Jesus' words. But the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul into everlasting life. Remember that Christ died for you. And feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Wait. Wait. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve your body and soul unto everlasting life. And remember that Christ's blood was shed for you. And be thankful. The body of Christ, the blood of Christ. The body of Christ keep you in eternal life. The blood of Christ keep you in eternal life. The body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. The blood of heaven in Christ Jesus. The cup of life in Christ Jesus now we dine with the Lord and when the hour came he reclined at the table and the apostles with him and he said to them I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer for I tell you that I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God now as they were eating Jesus took the bread and after he blessed it he broke it and gave it to the disciples and he said this is my body which is given for you do this took the cup and when he had given thanks he gave it to them saying drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins